O heavenly King, the comfort of the spirit of truth, heart shape our present, fulfill all things, treasure your blessings, and give our life. Come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, a good one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 So we are going to be covering. Josh, come on over. Pull up a chair if you need. Do I have enough copies? I think we do. So, we are going to be going over the Divine Liturgy. Did anyone get to read for this class, the section in Hopco? And I got the, hor- the what is it called, the Horologium? Yeah. And I'm trying to figure it out, put it together, how you know the pieces. <laughs> We'll talk about that, the women's synaxis. Okay. So, the divine liturgy is, of course, the service of the church, right? This is the summit. This is uh, where the life of the church comes from, right? This is where we sit. Well, we don't actually sit because we stand, but (laughs) (laughs) but we are brought to the table of God. We have in Old Testament, uh, before Moses is given the tablets, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments, there is where God calls up Moses and the elders halfway up the mountain and sits down and basically has a meal with them. So there is, throughout Old Testament scriptures, a theme of uh, a meal. I mean, you have food at the very beginning, right, at at the crux of what happens with Adam and Eve of partaking of something that they're not supposed to partake of. Uh, you have then the sacrifice and a, a, a food offered, right, with Cain and Abel. You have this kind of theme of food. You see this uh, throughout images of scripture uh, of the prophets when they're talking about when the Messiah is coming. What What is some of the main images that the prophets use? It is, we're going to return to that land of milk and honey. The wine is going to be flowing. It's going to be a table laid, and it's going to be a feast, right? So this is also, of course, then, as I'm thinking of a table with milk and honey, what does that make you think of if you're familiar with Scripture? This is the same to Moses and the promised land, right? Uh, They're fed with manna from heaven, right? That is kept in the temple, right, in the Ark of the Covenant, what God fed them and sustained them with. So we have all of these themes uh, come together in the early church in uh, the New Testament, uh, which uh, constitutes uh, the meal that Christ instituted. Uh, There is, if you're familiar with Christianity in general, except for, I think, the Quakers, everybody has some form of Lord's Supper, communion, uh, if you ask Protestants, they'll say, what are the two ordinances? If they don't like the word sacrament, they're going to say baptism and communion, right? This is at the core of the Christian faith. And what I would like for us to do, because I feel like, especially some of you, it's been a few months now, uh, maybe even a little bit longer. I think Kathleen is a little bit longer and maybe getting more used to the service. Uh, so let me just ask this. How... When you first encountered the Divine Liturgy, was it disorienting? Confusing? Kathleen, no? I just had no idea what was going on. I just existed (laughs) in the space. I mean, it took me a very long time to realize it was the same thing every week. Like, quite a long time. Because of (laughs) how much of not being used to it. And you can't hear the words so easily. Like, there's certain things you can pick out, especially if you're familiar with it. Like the Lord's Prayer and the Nicene Creed. But a lot of the hymns and stuff, unless you're standing, like, right there, you can't actually make out the words. It's just, like, nice singing happening over on that side of the church. And, And it can feel, because it's so... We just do church differently. You're not going in, so if you're like traditional Protestant, you go into a pew, you get a hymnal out, and you can look at the words. Mm-hmm. Or I guess in not traditional, they maybe the put project. the words up, project them up on a screen so that you can see the words. And part of the challenge with orthodoxy is like, if, it, if we were actually going to do that, there'd be, we would be very book heavy. <laughs> you would have, like, there's just, I mean, I tried to just, pay, this is just... The words and this is 25 pages mm-hmm. of just the liturgy now I don't know as you've gotten oriented to the liturgy have you realized or experienced 
this is a whole lot of scripture. Mm-hmm. The litanies, the things that are prayed for. I remember the first time I went to a liturgical service in general, because I grew up, I mean, we, every Christian group has a liturgy. They just don't really realize what they're doing, if that it is liturgical or not. Because all liturgy, we're habituating religious people, even if we're not going to church, right? We're going to create things. We're going to find transcendence. We're going to find... Uh, we're going to give meaning to things and live our lives around that. So what I discovered the first time I went to a liturgical or I say higher church is that when they actually did the prayers, because it wasn't just brother such and such who went up and kind of said the same prayer every week, actually, (laughs) because even if they were just saying it ad lib without reading it, they almost always were just saying the same prayer and they were all mimicking each other. And there was a kind of form of prayer and like the Baptists prayed a certain way, the Pentecostals prayed a certain way. I grew up Church of Christ, the Church of Christ prayed a certain way. So like if I was around like evangelicals, like if they said Father God, I knew that I was with the non-denominational or the Baptist because Church of Christ never said Father God <laughs> or God, I just want to like that, that kind of language. We were more formal in the way that we talked. So what you get uh, with the Orthodox liturgy is... In many ways, you can see this elements, as I was talking about, and talking about the layout of uh, the church. Uh, you took okay. uh, a lot of temple, Old Testament. Has anyone been to a synagogue or been to a service in a synagogue? So, one of the things that uh, I remember, because I had to go for a religious studies class in college, that I had to go, I think I ended up going to a bat mitzvah. Uh, is they took out the Torah, they venerate it, they parade it around, and then they read out of it, and like you know, they were doing a liturgical. There, there was this veneration for it that when I encountered Orthodoxy, the little entrance, we take we take out the gospel, we kiss it, right? We parade it around, we enshrine it, you know, kind of put it in its place, and when we take it out, it's treated. There is this kind of reverence that is there for it. So there's many aspects of uh, coming together. You see this in the Gospels. Jesus goes to the synagogue, they're reading from the prophets, right? So then he gets up and he preaches, basically. So Christian worship, uh, the basic outline that we see, there's always kind of prayers, uh, somebody speaking, kind of, um, the way the fathers will talk about it is... Uh, the breaking of the word kind of as it's bread that it's broken and then we're going to have there's two sections of the liturgy basically you have this liturgy of the word and you have the liturgy of the table or the altar the first part is the liturgy of the word which is uh, the antiphons, the little entrance uh, and kind of the hymnody that then brings us up to the epistle and the gospel reading and then after that, you get, uh, I call it a kind of like bridge of litanies that then takes us to the anaphora, which is then the liturgy or the part that is about the altar, where then we break the bread and the wine, right? So that basic structure that there's prayers, uh, reading of scripture, somebody preaching, and then moving to uh, a liturgy of commemorating, thanking Christ for his offering and then partaking of that offering, this is, I mean, this is Paul, right? This is temple. This is also if the, the structure that we have it, even if, with the divine liturgy as we do it today, you can find this in uh, second and third century, the rough, basic rough outline of what the Christians were doing. And Justin Martyr, he talks about this, uh, the way that they structure their service. So I, I think what happens over time there's always the challenge of paying attention in church, period, because the way that Orthodox, the kind of ethos of Orthodoxy is a lot different than a Protestant ethos, and I think sometimes even Catholic ethos, it depends, because you can find different kind of ethoi, I guess, <laughs> plural form of ethos. Uh, there's some Protestant churches that are much more reverential, I don't know, like, not as based on emotions as the kind of thing, and then a lot... Of Protestant settings, there is a play to emotions as a kind of key, which is why you sing anthems over and over and over again. Uh, so that wasn't classic Protestantism. If you go look back at classic Protestantism, the hymns and things were much more theological. They were much more, um, say, meaty. They actually said things. They taught things. Our hymnody, one of the things about our hymnody is it teaches us 
we are formed by the liturgy uh, as opposed to and I'm not trying to be critical I just I don't know what else there's a shift in worship in a lot of churches to where it became entertainment they shifted around the center became the pulpit or it became the screen it just if you even look at the way they build churches now it's an auditorium it's not where there's an action that happens or the pulpit became the focus of the Reformation and then it went from altar where everyone's facing the same direction to then the pulpit and then it kind of turned back into the people themselves. So what you get with the Orthodox liturgy, it's also didactic. It is forming you and shaping you. So it's not something, this is not a secret sensitive service, right? Like it's not boiled down to the simplest thing possible in order to just hand it to you so that somebody off the street could just come in and immediately get what it's all about. There is something, because the reality is scripture, God is more complicated than that. And there is a simplicity there, but there's also a complexity. It's kind of like talking to a human being. Like you have a conversation with somebody about the weather and you can have a nice little thing and like, oh, where are you from? But then when you actually start talking to them, like the abyss of like the the person actually shows themselves. So what I would like to do for us, I could just kind of talk all over the place, but uh, I want us to just kind of go through the divine liturgy. Uh, where you can ask some questions about what does this mean, or uh, etc. Uh, I can give a kind of rough historical outline, because while I'm saying this liturgy says it's from John Chrysostom, if you read Hopko, this is basically right. John Chrysostom did not sit down and go, okay, I'm going to do a liturgy. Okay, what is the first part? Blessed is the king, right? That was not how it worked. What you basically get, the reason why Chrysostom and then Basil, which if you're here in Lent, why we had longer services on Sundays is because the anaphora part is attributed to Basil. Uh, you have John and Basil uh, are attributed to them. Uh, some say that they wrote it themselves. Some say that it was inspired by them. Uh, but they're the ones who did the anaphora, those prayers. It is meet and right to sing to thee, to bless thee, to hymn thee, to worship thee, that were all of the words basically before the words of institution, right? The offering up of uh, the Eucharist. Those are attributed to them. So these, this basic structure that we have is third, fourth century. And then there's little edits here and there. If you were to go, to de- go down the street to St. George, down the street, a few streets, uh, you would be able to see the similarity. But if you were used to St. Anne's, you would know that it's different. Because they cut some things and they do some things differently than we do. Um, but basically, everywhere in the Orthodox Church, if you were in church today for this Sunday, you did the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, you would have done All Saints or whatever. So if you're in Greece, it would have done All Saints of Greece. If you're in Russia, it would have been All Saints of Russia. If you're in Serbia, All Saints of Serbia. If you're in England, it would have done All Saints of England or the British Isles, it kind of probably depends on where you're at. Maybe in Ireland, they did all Saints of Ireland. I don't know. We're not going to step into that. Uh, but you get with this little variations. And this is something that will grow. I, I highly recommend, and this might seem daunting, but to kind of memorize and even kind of push yourself to, not that you have to memorize every single word, but the, the basic structure Uh and Vespers, too, is a good idea. The reason why I say that is before semi- I went to seminary, it was in seminary where I really like learned the structure, and it was immensely helpful <laughs> because I knew where I was in the service. Uh, I could pay attention better, even in the choir, because it's kind of like a hose <laughs> of information sometimes coming at you. And the way is you're never going to be able to get on top of that hose and like be able to drink it all in. What you do, certain things are going to hit you and that's what you stick with. You, you pay attention to what is being said. You, you're going to have to strain a little bit sometimes to attend because most of us are used to absorbing things in a very different way than listening to things for an hour and a half to two hours. So it's a struggle. Just like prayer is a struggle, uh, just like actually paying attention, uh, even to those that you love, sometimes it can be a struggle to really listen. So a lot of the liturgy participation is struggling to hear, but also to pray in that, to be inspired to pray, to actually uh, put aside as we hear this theme throughout the 
uh, the liturgy to put aside earthly cares and actually attend to heavenly things. So, all right, I'm going to stop talking, and we can start with the, the liturgy. I really should uh, read the Hopko sections. He does a very good job. It's not fiery. It's not over the top. It's straightforward. There's also nice pictures in this section if you do it online. You can see uh, I'm not going over the prothesis or the proscomedie, which is the service that happens before the service. Because if you've ever wondered when does the lamb get cut out of the bread, that is something I'm here an hour beforehand, and there's a service. And if you could read through the service, it's there online. It basically walks you through the service. Um, the liturgy starts with blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did anyone in their first experience of St. Anne's coming here come a little bit early and wonder what was going on or thought that it, things had already started? Because we do the third and sixth hour. That's my son, Alex. You <laughs> <laughs> recognize four. that he, screen? <laughs> oh, he's, he's just four right now. Uh, we do the third and sixth hour, which are basically preparatory prayer, prayers uh, before the liturgy. Uh, to kind of get ready for the liturgy. Uh, but the liturgy itself is when the deacon comes out and says, Bless Master, and then the priest intones, Blesses the kingdom by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that time I have the gospel stood upright and I make the sign of the cross over the Antimension, uh, which is basically the, the bishop's signed, uh, it's basically an icon, it's a piece of fabric. There's an icon of the dep deposition of Christ off of the cross, uh, and it has the signature of the bishop on it that basically says that we can do a liturgy with the blessing of the bishop. Uh, we'll talk about how that it's all folded up when I'm doing that, and we'll talk about the unfolding of it. Excuse me. Yep. Can I ask a question? Real yep. Is this uh, on the website? I can send you the, a PDF of it. Okay. I got my phone with me today. I can actually like look at look at it and follow along. What is your email? It's a F P H I L L I nine three at gmail.com. Do it for me one more time. F P H I H I L L I nine three at gmail.com. F P H I L L I nine three at Gmail. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I just it's, it's fine. No. I thought maybe I could follow it's along. It's helpful to follow along. <laughs> 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 no, where'd you go? Email. I love my PDFs. I'm going to send you a link to the Google Drive where I have it. I'm also going to share it with you. Okay. So this is considered it. the skeleton, right? And then the, the verses and the scriptures and the readings... Yes, so what you basically have is you have the I like skeleton, okay. right? The liturgy. This is not going to have the movable parts, parts of okay. it, right? Uh, so this is always, the great litany is always the great litany. When it, we are always, a sacrament is going to, uh, the liturgy is going to start with blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So does uh, baptism and so does weddings start with blessed is the kingdom uh, vespers and things don't start with that invocation. Uh, the Great Litany is, uh, it's called the Great Litany because it's the Great Litany. It's the long one. It kind of covers, uh, you can see there's a beginning of an invocation asking for peace. Uh, the first three litanies, first it's in peace, let us begin this, this service in peace. Uh, that comes from God. Uh, then there's a kind of a direction towards ourselves, peace from above and for the salvation of our souls, and then peace for the whole world and the welfare of the holy churches of God and the union of all. Uh, then there's a prayer specifically for this church and those who enter it with faith, reverence, and the fear of God. And then we'll have, and this is the, the typical order. Uh, in the Orthodox Church, there is always uh, an order 
of things. Uh, by order, I mean, in the Greek, it's taxis. There's kind of like a hierarchy of things. You're always going to have uh, prayers for the metropolitan, for the bishop, for the honorable priest of the diaconate in Christ, for the clergy and the people, and then you're going to have civil so there's always the church is what is commemorated first, just kind of like asking for peace from God, peace for our souls, and then peace for the world. There's this kind of sense of if there's going to be peace, it's got to start with me, and then we ask for peace for the world. Then we're going to pray for the church. Then we're going to pray for civil authorities, the president, armed forces, etc. And then we're going to, it starts expanding from there, right? Or uh, the city, every city and countryside for the faithful dwelling in them, for seasonable weather, for abundance of the fruits of the earth, and for peaceful times. For travelers, all those for travelers, uh, and a modern edition of this is in part uh, by air, right? That, that would be a, a more recent addition to that litany. To hear by space, also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, for deliverance from all affliction, wrath, danger, necessity. This is about basically um, deliver us from bad situations, right? Uh, help us, save us, have mercy on us, and keep us, O God, by the grace. That is always the litany that is done before the commemoration, where there is the sense of we're praying, but in this, the last litany of every litany is the commemoration, where we turn to the Mother of God, and we turn to the saints, and we commend ourselves, and all of the church, uh, this one way of talking about it, triumphant, and militant, right? We're at the militant church, and then there's the triumphant church. Uh, the triumphant is the ones who've already won, right? We're still in the struggle here, so we're in battle. Uh, but this litany and the entire liturgy itself presumes that we're all together doing this. It's not like we showed up and now we're talking to each other. We're showed up and there's already a gathering of all of the saints. It's part of the reason for the iconography. Uh, and you'll see this, this theme uh, throughout the liturgy. While this is happening, the priest, there are silent prayers. Uh, in Greek, that is in mystikos, as you can hear mystical there, because mystical is one of those words that I hate, because it means a lot of things to people. But uh, it, mystical means kind of hidden, right? Uh, it doesn't mean just like ex uh, internal experiences, but it means something that's veiled, something that... Uh, is for us when we say the holy mysteries of Christ we talk about the ways in which we receive Christ through the sacraments through the life of the church um, so the uh, priest has a silent prayer and then there is the ekphonesis or the exclamation which is basically a doxology this is the basic structure of all litanies you basically have a series of things the people respond Lord have mercy or grant this O Lord and then uh, you always know that you're at the end of a litany because you hear commemorating our most holy, most blessed, and most pure uh, Lady Theotokos, Ever Virgin Mary, and with all the saints, those come in. that is always the end of a litany, basically. Uh, and then the priest uh, doing uh, an exclamation. The, in the historic church, by the historic church, I mean like the first four centuries, uh, these antiphons that we have, there's the first, second, and then the third antiphon, which are punctuated by little litanies. These antiphons would have been done... Well, do, do you all know what the word an antiphon means? What, antiphonal? I'm sure you've heard of antiphonal. You know what antiphonal singing is? It's basically, let's say, your choir A and your choir B. Choir A does the first antiphon. Then choir B would do the second antiphon. This is... Uh, Antiphonal singing goes is a church thing. Uh, particular ways of singing, uh, you have Ambrose uh, talked about the way that they sang. Uh, you basically have a lot of churches historically. They basically would have had two choirs. Let's say this is a church, and you, have, you would have had two choirs. And partly, uh, it sounds nice to have echoing back and forth and kind of a different timbre and singing where you can have them uh, doing it back and forth different verses of the psalms back and forth uh it also just helps because it's a long service so it helps sometimes to have an antiphonal choirs so that you have one choir that sings first antiphon the other choir is just resting so there's practical but it's also just historic as why but hist before that even historically what happened to these antiphons is the church uh did not actually start the service inside of the church they would have done stational they would have been basically processing through the city 
singing psalms on their way to church. So when Bishop Grossman is planning to schedule to be here on October 8th, so you'll be able to see this. If you ever see a hierarchical service, the bishop does not go into the altar until after. You see this in remnant, even on a Sunday morning for us, even when the bishop is not here. The little entrance where we come out with the gospel and kind of parade around and then basically just walk right back in, right? The reason this is a remnant of when everyone would have entered the church at the little entrance and then the gospel would have been put on the altar because it had been being carried through the streets of Rome, Jerusalem, uh, Constantinople, etc. And then they would have come into the church and enter the church at the little entrance because that was when they entered the church. Okay? So we have some remnants of the way historically things used to work. Um, the antiphons are basically certain psalms uh, that we sing, that are the set psalms. I forget what the numbers are off the top of my head if you want to look that up. I'm pretty sure Hopko talks about what the specific psalms are. Um, this is basically then the third antiphon is the Beatitudes. And then we have a little entrance. Are there any questions about the litanies <coughs> or antiphons? Are they always the same all year long? So. <coughs> yes and no. Okay, you don't have to go into it, but I just. I well, was so they Pentecost, they were not the same. Okay, that's what I thought. That's why I'm having a hard time keeping up. So, yes, on a regular Sunday, yes. It's so it's not like we're reading the same thing every week. Yeah, we basically are. But I mean, it's different. Uh, when, like, for a great feast, mm -hmm. if we were doing weekday liturgies, it would be a simplified form. Uh, and blah, 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 sorry, and feasts of our Lord typically, uh, in certain feasts, they have festal antiphons where it is different uh, psalms that are being used, and then they'll have different verses that are done there. So, for example, the third antiphon, it wouldn't be the Beatitudes; it would be the singing of the Treparian. Yes, uh, Father. This is also where you'll see some uh, some variation between yes. the Russian style of the Greek, like in the in Greek or Arabic churches, they'll 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 sing as a first hand, um, uh, through the prayers of the Holy Theotokos, O Savior, save us, and the second is O Son of God who rose from the dead, save us, and um, and and culminating with the with the um, with the um, um, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's a that that's that's a very the variation you'll see if you go to the parishes, like if you're on vacation. And honestly, you probably won't even notice it. The people who notice that are the choir directors and the clergy. I didn't really. I, I was like, something's different. You know, it's like, what is it? What like, what exactly is it? Because you just kind of go to church and you're trying to pay attention, but. You're absolutely right. That's some of one of the little differences of St. George. They have a simplified version of the antiphons where they will do verses from the original songs. We do the whole psalm. They do some verses and they say, save us, you know. So uh, this all is then uh, up to the little entrance uh, where the gospel is presented, uh, brought out amongst the people. Uh, it is lifted aright and Throughout the liturgy, there is the kind of summons to pay attention. That is what wisdom, let us stand aright, or wisdom, uh, let us attend. That is basically saying, pay attention in Byzantine style. <laughs> uh, and then there's the entrance into the altar where the gospel is then put back on the altar. Uh, at during that entrance, uh, there is then particular hymns that are sung. These are always typically variable hymns. Uh, we have a whole system, uh, I don't want to get too into the weeds about the system of the hymns, but basically we're on an eight-week cycle because there's eight tones that are the resurrectional hymns that will be every Sunday. So if you're around for a year or two, you'll start recognizing some of the hymns. And like I know most of the hymns. Once I start hearing them, I can almost sing them just because I've heard them enough. Uh, there's always the hymn for the saint of the church, whoever the patron of the church is. So if you went to St. George, they would sing St. George. You went to St. Nectarios, they would sing to St. Nectarios. We sing to Anne and Joachim, which is on there too, because Joachim and, and Anne are kind of almost always considered as a unit. Um, once we do that, we then uh, move into the Chisagion. Uh The Chisagion was introduced into the liturgy, I 
believe, if I'm remembering correctly, it is not, it's like 8th or ninth century is when the Chisagan actually came into uh, the liturgy. Uh, if I remember correctly, it had to do with uh, a earthquake that happened and the church basically singing for protection. Uh, and this particular, there's a story about this chanter, boy chanter who uh, really wanted to learn how to chant, but he wasn't that great. Uh, and then basically he was taught this hymn and then he sang it and then that became the hymn that everyone started singing and so now it's like enshrined in the middle of the service uh, this is holy God holy mighty holy mortal have mercy on us which is obviously in the liturgy and it's in your daily prayers as well um, there's other translations of this like holy God holy strong uh, holy eternal uh, some, our English translation is not awesome, but no English translation of it, right? Like translation itself, you always are going to lose things. So uh, God that is holy, God that is strong, God that is eternal, have mercy on us. Uh, after the singing of the Chisagion, uh, we have the, uh, the epistle reading, which is done uh, here typically by a reader, uh, which the Prochemenon the Prochemenon is basically kind of an introductory thematic set of psalms, right? So the Prochemenon, uh, it follows that same tonal system. So there's like eight tones, so it's the third tone. The Prochemenon is going to be in the third tone, and it's what that Prochemenon is in the third tone. Does tone just mean tune? Melody, kind of. Like, okay. so, all right, how far down the rabbit hole do we want to go? <laughs> so our, the all... The way we do stuff here is four-part Russian Western notation. The church is older than Western notation and four-part harmony, right? So if you are listening to Byzantine chant, they have tonal systems that are not bass clef, treble clef. It is, and now I'm going to get way out of my field of like what I know actually well, okay? so, <laughs> But what happens is you move into... Uh, more like Gregorian chant, or if, if you see Byzantine nooms and notation, you don't have staff, and it's not according to like modes. It, it not, mode is not the right word. Uh, well, the keys are keys, different. First yeah, of all, they're, 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 we, we would th consider most of them to be minor keys. <laughs> the, the first tone, the second tone, the third tone, and there's these like basically repertoire that you learn how to sing. And they have certain way forms and melodic structures, but in a third tone, you can have variations of that third tone according to what the feast is, where it is in the service. This is why this is rabbit hole, right? You, there are there are Byzantine. Yeah. You have to be certified. Yeah. You, these Byzantine tones. You said something about Gregorian chants, right? That's kind of like similar or like old Roman chant. Also, because I've, I've learned, like, church modes, you know, the so, and or whatever they're called. But exactly. So, this is going to sound more like this. Is, is it, that's, that's the kind of stuff that church modes is what you were Yes. This is Greek from Monastery of Mount Athos. This is, blesses the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's very, it's very different than what we do because we do like Russian, Italian style music. Like in a, in a, in a Western style of music, you're, you're, you're not going to have an A flat unless B and E are flat also. But in, but in Byzantine chant, it may not be that way, and it, and it gives it a much different, different structure and style. Yeah, I just this is antiphon. It's like you hear a ison, and then you have the melody. That's basically so. It's a very simplified, but it's, I mean, it's also very complicated in its own way. Yeah, they have the one singer that goes. Yeah, they have the ison. So this is kind of like this isn't obviously for her Gregorian chant. This sounds differently. So, but they have different tones that you would move around, and they associate with different tones like levity or like. So when we did. Um, the uh, lamentation service during Holy Week, that was all Byzantine music. It sounds very like 
and every generation. It just, that doesn't sound, <laughs> it doesn't follow. You can do and try to put it in notation, but you always lose a certain kind of resonance and the particularities of Byzantine chant. I love Byzantine chant. Most of the church, I, I wasn't baptized in the Greek church. I'm more used to historically the Greek church. I appreciate the Russian style stuff. It was something that came in the 18th, 19th century because of influence from the West. Uh, the, the typical thing that we do called obichod is basically court music that came from the Russian like court uh, that was put to for the services and it just became a typical Russian way to do services. I think it has its own beauty. I think Americans are much more like attracted to that kind of singing because we're more used to four-part harmonies and the way they resolve and everything. And a lot of people, if they hear Byzantine chant, they think that they are listening to uh, Muslims singing. Mm-hmm. Which is Byzantine chant was just before Islam. <laughs> and so a lot of the architecture and the singing is actually them taking things that were already existing and mm-hmm. For their own, we're making prostrations, the prostrations, <laughs> the prayer robes, the whole, all, all sorts of things. Just no icons, and no Jesus, obviously. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I'm very interested in music. I've always been. Yeah, that's fine. So, uh, if you're familiar with the terms relative pitch and perfect pitch, uh-huh. uh, obviously, the tone and melody of a song is relative pitch. How important does the church consider a perfect pitch? Well, I don't... I'm not... Uh, you understand what I'm, I'm not, understand what I mean by that? Uh, does it have to like, be... Are you at the right frequency? It doesn't matter. It, <laughs> it all depends on whoever is uh, okay. chanting. I, I so, for example, if, 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 if Father Stephen was the rector right now, they would probably be pitching... They, they basically, the pitch has lowered because my voice is lower. For example, <laughs> because I I can't <laughs> do it up there, so my voice is just naturally lower, and uh, it is always you can hear Byzantine chant. They're going to adjust according to who's chanting, who's serving. Uh, so they're, they're, if that if I'm understanding correctly, it's not like it has to be a perfect C. Or the, like right. they, they they can move around a little somebody, bit. Somebody somebody with perfect pitch, they can hear any note and know exactly what is this C4 or is this well it'd be helpful (laughs) but it'd also drive them crazy because church choirs are never perfect (laughs) we almost always go (laughs) 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 we start off here and then by the end it's like they're with me Uh, so uh, the Brachimenon you'll hear for example at Pentecost, or like when we have the Apostles' Fast, it's going to be ending with the Feast of the P- Apostles Peter and Paul. There's going to be their proclamation has gone out into all the corners of the universe, right? Which is a, a psalm verse. So the themes of the psalm, certain feasts, uh, Pascha, the Prokimenon, uh, is going to be have a Paschal element to it, or like, isn't to be interpreted in that frame. So. But then you have the typical tones that are the, the movable parts, but move according to which tone it is in the week. The lectionary, uh, are you all familiar with the term lectionary? Basically the set, the, the prescribed readings. Uh, if I'm sure you've recognized this, but they are thematic according to what the feast is, right? If it was the feast of Peter and Paul, you're going to get the epistle is going to be uh, something that includes Peter and Paul together. Uh, I can't remember. I don't think it's where Paul is rebuking Peter to his face, but I think it's from the book of Acts, actually, if I'm remembering correctly. It's been, it's been a year. And then the gospel will have something that will include, like, almost always thematically. So there is a certain gospel and epistle that is for bishops. There's a certain gospel and epistle that is typically for typical martyrs. Uh, and then there is the Sunday lectionary, and there's also a Sunday, Saturday lectionary. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. Uh, but... Look, you can always go on OCA.org and see what our readings are. Uh, I recommend reading ahead of time because it always is helpful to know what basically what is going to be said. We're, we are going to try to get a standing mic for the epistle reader so that we can have a better, so people can hear you better. I thought I was loud, but anyway. It doesn't matter how loud you are because <laughs> I'm loud too and you can't hear me. Even if I'm preaching, if I was like shouting practically from the Ambon, you, if you come back here, you can't hear me. 
because it just the, the it just dies. So after the epistle reading, you have the Alleluia. If any of you are familiar with Roman Catholic Mass, a lot of the structure is similar <laughs> uh, because this is just historic Christian form of how they did things. Uh, and then we have the Gospel reading. Uh, it is typical. Uh, after the gospel to have sermons, but not all the time. Some churches do sermons after the liturgy. Uh, I think it makes a whole lot of sense to do the sermon after you do the epistle and gospel reading. Uh, as I was talking about, the fathers talk about there is the breaking of the bread, a kind of, uh, as we have in that experience of Christ on the road to Emmaus with Luke and Cleopas, where he breaks the bread, uh, and as he's, he's talked to them first, uh, about the scriptures and what Moses is talking about and their hearts burn within them and then they break the bread and they see him in the breaking of the bread so you have that kind of basic structure that there Christ is revealed our hearts are warmed in the reading of scripture St. Jerome talks about we don't know Christ if we don't know scripture there's no way to really know Christ that well unless you actually know scripture so it is incredibly important uh, there's kind of been an emphasis in a lot of Orthodox circles about how we're very altar-centered, and like the sermon doesn't matter that much in comparison. But that's not actually the tradition. <laughs> if you read Saint John Chrysostom, and you're like, he would go on for an hour or so. Uh, they're they're used to hearing the word being preached. Uh, what has happened over time is uh, typically things have just gotten shortened down, etc. So I. I will always preach after the gospel unless I'm visiting some other church and they ask me to do something differently, if they ask me to preach. So I think it makes the most sense. After we've broken uh, the bread of scripture, we are now, I call this kind of the bridge of litanies that, to get us to the next section, uh, where we have a litany of fervent supplication. Uh, this is, uh, you can see the same kind of form in a way. We have the, the bishop the church, then the world. And this is where we pray for those who have gone on before us, uh, those who are uh, in particular um, intentions from the parish. So for mercy, life, peace. I'm in the middle of 29, sorry. I'm kind of skipping ahead here. Uh, and then offer all those who have brought things to the church uh, and those who labor, etc. everyone who's at the church. So this is called the fervent supplication because it is more specific and particular names are said uh, and particular intentions are put here. This is where, for example, the Synod asked us to start doing prayers for Ukraine because historically the OCA has a lot of connections with Russia and Ukraine. That is the reason why that is, that is in there. Um, not that we... Never mind. <laughs> We were, we're doing what we're asked, we're told to do and doing the, the prayers, and the prayers come from the Senate uh, about what. Because there are people who come from other parts of the world, they're like, well, there's war there, and why Ukraine as opposed to somewhere else? So it's like, because the Senate, all of our connections, etc. that is why. If there is somebody, if there is a situation or something that you would like to be prayed for, you can always ask me about uh, including it. We have particular kind of time frames, because if we just... Uh, if somebody asked to pray for somebody in that, uh, indefinitely, we would just have a gigantic list. So we kind of have 40 days we pray for the dead and 30 days we pray for intentions of those. Unless there's somebody who's like, we have some, we're wrestling or struggling with cancer. We, they're always right now on the prayer list. So on other days, but specifically on Saturdays, uh, is a day that is specifically for commemoration of the dead because of Holy Saturday. Uh, so that is the litany for the departed that is done. Uh, especially you would hear that uh, if we did the liturgy, the liturgies, uh, the Soul Saturday liturgies during Lent, where we are they're dedicated to the remembrance of those who have gone on before us. After that, we have the litany of the catechumens. Uh, this is um, where, of course, we're praying for the catechumens, uh, that the Lord will have mercy on them, that God will teach them the word of truth, that he will reveal to them the gospel of righteousness, that he will unite them to his holy Catholic and apostolic church, that he have helped them, save them, have mercy on them, and keep them on God by their grace. And then we have the prayer that the priest does. This is typically done silently, but I do it out loud here for the sake of the catechumens. 
here uh, at St. Anne's, we have the practice of having those who've been blessed uh, to be catechumens uh, or have enrolled as catechumens officially. They come forward and just do a simple blessing. Uh, partly, uh, it's nice because historically, uh, after the uh, doxology of this litany, uh, the deacon uh, tells all the catechumens to depart. Historically, uh, in the church, the, the catechumens left because the part that was open to them has finished and we're now moving into an aspect that they can't partake of, which is Holy Communion. Uh, this has not been that way for some time. Uh, a lot of it is because uh, that practice happened before, how should I say this, basically Christianization of the of most people, <laughs> that the church was around basically. Uh, there weren't that many catechumens because the catechumens were babies who were baptized. So, like, you're in 7th century Greece, almost everybody around you is already a Christian and a part of the church. So, there are, the Greek church very often doesn't even do this litany. Uh, we do this because well, we have catechumens. And when we don't have catechumens, we still do it because there's catechumens somewhere. So, uh, catechumens have stayed. I kind of like bringing them forward and then say catechumens depart because it seems organically, like, just telling them to go back to their spot, but historically they would have been taken out of the church. Uh, we then go through these basically short litanies, uh, and you can see the focus of the prayers of the priest. Uh, this is on 35 in the italics. Uh, we thank thee, O Lord God of hosts, who has accounted us worthy to stand even now before thy holy altar, and to fall down before thy compassion for our sins, and for the errors of all thy people, and enable us also, when thou hast placed in this thy service. You can tell this prayer is not a general consumption prayer. What I mean by that is, this is a prayer that the priest do, is doing for himself, right? So, enable us, this is why this is not, I don't do this out loud, this is part of the reason why I don't do this out loud, because it's a prayer for me, Right? Enable us also whom thou hast placed in this thy service, the priesthood, by the power of the Holy Spirit, blamelessly, without offense, and the pure witness of our conscience, to call upon thee at all times, and every place that hearing us, thou mayest be merciful to us according to the multitude of thy great goodness. Then if you move down, this, these little simple litanies, we have another uh, prayer, again and oftentimes, we fall down before thee, O God, who lovest mankind, that looking down upon our petitions, thou wouldst cleanse our souls and bodies from all defilement of flesh and spirit, and grant us to stand blamelessly and without condemnation before thy holy altar. Grant also to those who pray with us, O God, growth in life and faith and spiritual understanding. Grant them to worship thee blamelessly with fear and love, and to partake without condemnation of thy holy mysteries, and be accounted worthy of thy heavenly kingdom. So you can see the focus of the prayers is, is shifted from a kind of general concern to the focus that is coming of communion and preparation uh, and repentance and cleansing uh, for the reception of communion. The Cherubic Hymn, uh, this is one of the great uh, hymns of the church and of the liturgy. This is kind of, I would say, if there is a transition point, this is the big transition point to the liturgy of uh, the altar of uh, communion. This is uh, calling on us to lay aside our earthly cares because we are entering into and worshiping with the angels. So let us who mystically represent the cherubim, uh, we are kind of given the status as angels, as if we are ourselves, well, as if, I'm saying as if, we are standing around the altar uh, and we are mimicking or if not mimicking joining the angelic hymn that is, is already going on. So let us who mystically represent the cherubim and who sing the thrice holy hymn to life cream trinity now lay aside our earthly cares. Uh, the priest quietly while the deacon is sensing the, the priest says no one who is bound with the desires and pleasures of the flesh is worthy to approach or draw near to serve thee O king of glory for to administer thee is great and awesome even to the heavenly powers. Nevertheless, through thine unspeakable and boundless love for mankind, thou hast become man, yet without change or alteration, and as ruler of all didst become our high priest. And didst commit to us the ministry of this liturgical and bloodless sacrifice, for thou alone, O Lord our God, rulest over those in heaven and on earth who art born on the throne of the cherubim, who art Lord of the seraphim and king of Israel. 
who alone art good and ready to listen, look down on me a sinner, an unprofitable servant, and cleanse my soul and my heart from an evil conscience. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, enable me, whom endowed with the grace of the priesthood, to stand before this thy holy table, and perform the sacred mystery of thy holy and pure body and precious blood. For I draw near to thee, and bowing my neck I implore thee, do not turn thy face away from me, nor cast me out from among thy children, but make me thy sinful and worthy servant, worthy to offer gifts to thee. For thou art the offerer, offerer and the offered, the receiver and the received, O Christ our God. And to thee we ascribe glory to thy fathers from everlasting, and a holy good and life-giving spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. This prayer that the priest does is uh, follows kind of the typical format of prayers, where there is calling a reminder of like what it is to stand before God, what our actual state is, and the sin that has uh, got us in its grasp, and how we are um, standing before God who is, and you can think of all of the Old Testament uh, visions of the prophets, you have God who is enthroned and the cherubim, the seraphim, fly around him singing the thrice holy hymn, holy, the sanctus, if you're familiar with the Latin term, right? The holy, 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 uh, that we see from the book of Revelation, Isaiah. Uh, so in this context, the priest is praying for um, basically that he's able to draw near because he's not worthy. Because as he says at the beginning, nobody's worthy. Uh, and so this, that, that basic form of kind of orthodox spirituality, which is to emphasize and know our place as creatures and our place and what how broken and sinful we are and yet there's kind of always this emphasis and you probably notice this in your prayers there is this i am broken i am unworthy uh, you have not destroyed me in my sins if you're morning prayers right but there's always this movement of like realism but then always hope that there is in christ uh, because he's our high priest, that uh, he's not going to turn his face away, but he's going to make, even though I'm sinful and unworthy servant, worthy to offer the gifts, because he is the one who's actually the one offering, right? We bring bread and wine, and we offer it, but he gave us the ability to make the bread and the wine. He's the one who gave us bread and wine. He's the one who, why we're here, right? So he is the one who offers to himself so he gives us the gifts to give. Uh, and so this prayer that we are offering to uh, God, and this is the interesting thing, this whole prayer, have you ever thought about what, who, who is addressed throughout the, the prayer of the anaphora as we get there? Sorry, let's skip over this litany, the supplication, the offering of bread and wine. So we've gone out, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. We do the great entrance, right? Bring out the gifts, we put them on the altar, we have a litany, and then we have the creed, because we are confessing uh, the faith that we believe in, and then we are going to move into the anaphora. Of course, I have seven minutes left. Okay. <laughs> we have in the anaphora this prayer. Who is the, the prayer addressed to? Bueller. Bueller. Uh, I mean, God, God ineffable. I guess uh -huh. God the Father, or what? Yeah, there you go. It's actually addressed <laughs> to God the Father. I think a lot of times you think it's going to be Jesus, right? Of course, right? It's Jesus. Actually, this prayer is addressed to God the Father. Uh, it is meet and right to sing to the. Sorry, this translation is not exactly the translation that we use here. Uh, before I get. The whole movement of the anaphora is that we are, again, like we're standing before the altar. We have uh, the invocation of the Trinitarian invocation, which is a quote from 1 Corinthians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. That's when I come out and give a blessing. And then there is that let us lift up our hearts. This is like Colossians and Ephesians, where we are in the heavenly places. We're supposed to put our mind and our hearts uh, where Christ dwells, because we, we are seated at the right hand of Christ. So we are basically encouraged, I would say even commanded, like, lift, let us lift up our hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. This is like throughout all of Christendom, this is the prayer. I think even Lutherans will do this prayer, okay? Um, and then let us give thanks to the Lord, and we say it is meet and right to worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, one in essence, undivided. And then we have this entire prayer that is offered to God the Father 
basically, the, the, the long and the short of it is, thank you for making us. Thank you for doing everything possible, uh, even the things that we don't know, right? For all the things which we know and which we know not, whether manifest or unseen to us, we thank thee even for this liturgy, which you have uh, found us worthy to accept uh, that our hands are the ones who are offering this up to you. Though there stand by the thousands of archangels, the hosts of angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, who are aloft, born of their pinions, singing the triumphant hymn, shouting, proclaiming, and saying, and then we have the people then singing the Trisagion or the Sanctus, the holy, holy, holy. I think, you know how when you're a kid and you hear certain things, there is this one uh, hymn that I grew up singing that I thought lettuce was actually lettuce, like the yes, lettuce, uh, born on their opinions. So people thought they were born on opinions instead of opinions. The things that kids hear. I, you are welcome to have a copy of this too because I, it, in the church, we talk about study of scripture, but it is also helpful to study and to look at the prayers because the prayers uh, are the basic setting in which you encounter God, right? Uh, so I recommend this. You can keep this. I can send you a PDF. Uh, this is basically a stripped down form of what exists out on the table. I just took out all the little commentary because I didn't want the commentary. <laughs> I just want the, the text. Uh, this prayer, why, why a prayer to God the Father as opposed to Jesus or the Holy Spirit? I mean, God the Father is sort of God, the Godhead. So there's this idea, even though they're all one, there is this sense of hierarchy, kind of, and sense of... Mm-hmm. The beginning almost being of the Father. Right, so we'll say, you're absolutely right. And this is where we have to be really careful about our language, mm-hmm. right? Which is, I can see you kind of like, I, I don't know what word to use, mm-hmm. which is how the fathers talk. So they say what has been revealed in Scripture is God the Father is the font of deity, right? He is the origin, right? He's the unoriginate Father. <coughs> the Son comes forth from the Father, he, but He is totally equal. He's not less than, He's not a, a co deity. He is. God of God, true light of true light, right? So the Spirit, the Son is begotten of the Father, the Spirit uh, uh, proceeds from the Father. Sorry, I I had a Latin term and stuck in my head, spirate. That is how the Orthodox Church basically explains the Trinity. The Father, why are we not tritheists? The Fathers literally have, uh, I want to say articles, they didn't write articles, letters that are basically why we're not tritheists. Uh, why are we actually monotheists if we believe in three persons of the Godhead, right? Uh, and so they have the explanation. Basically, uh, God the Father is divinity, and the Son and the Spirit are co-reigning, co-eternal, completely equal with him. There's just three persons. Now, there's some aspect of this. Uh, St. Gregory the Theologian, in talking about this, I recommend two on Wednesday nights. Sorry, let me finish the Gregory the Theologian, and then I'll talk about Wednesday night. <laughs> I do that all the time, I'm sorry. Uh, Gregory the Theologian talks about what does it mean that Jesus is begotten of the Father. He says, I don't know. (laughs) But that's what scripture says. Because he's saying that's divinity. I I don't really know exactly, but that is the word that has been given. You shouldn't, I know what you don't believe, uh, Jesus Christ is not like Hera or Athena, you know, Athena coming out of the head of Zeus, right? He's not begotten in any kind of carnal sense from the Father. But what exactly that means, we don't know. And that's okay. Because there's some aspect uh, of the Trinity where we have the basic outline of things and we know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But because it is divinity and we're creatures, that's the uncreated and we're creatures, there is a mystery around that that we're not going to fully comprehend. I've never had a problem with the Trinity because God the Father and then he sent the Son Jesus into the world. Jesus went back to heaven and he sent the Spirit to be with us. You know, and I don't know why. Talk to a Muslim or a Jew. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I just wanted to ask, I guess, so, you know, obviously the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not bodies. Correct. How would you characterize them? Personalities, perhaps? So I'd be careful with personalities because personal they, they are not like uh, me, Devin, and mm-hmm. Catherine, right? Uh, because we're talking about 
Uh, we're not one e and equal and one substance and what right like mm -hmm. uh, they their person when we say person basically the fathers are trying to come up with a vocabulary of figuring out how to talk about something that they don't have a vocabulary to talk about so they just chose hypostasis to say person but it doesn't that in the Greek or the Latin it was more of a mask idea and but that didn't mean sabellianism or this kind of idea of like there's one God who wears a father mask and then like comes over and he's like, now I'm the son uh, and now I'm the spirit. Uh, this is like oneness Pentecostals actually think kind of like this, that basically it's modalism. God basically shows this different face. It's almost like a Hinduism or something like the divinity, just kind of an avatar of divinity. That's not what the Christian faith is. So when we say person, we just have to be careful that we don't mean, like, we psychologize persons, and that's not what we mean when we say person. Is this where the, like, essence of energies comes into play? That comes in in a different way. Okay. And I probably won't talk about that in catechism. <laughs> catechism, I'm trying to, like, give you an intro. This is, like, right, Wikipedia-level right. stuff, and we could go... I mean, I, I could do the whole catechism just off the liturgy. I've done that before. Uh... It's slow going, <laughs> and it requires me to create a lot of info and do a lot of lecturing. And I honestly, it's better for you to have something that you can read and absorb on your own instead of just coming for an hour and me talking at you to have it work together. So, the whole I'm out of time. Uh, can I make one observation? Yes, please. One thing that one thing I think that everybody should take away from this when they look at the liturgy and they experience the liturgy, and it's something that. It is, it, you know, I, I grew up Protestant. I was a Baptist for thirty years, and and but it's a deep sense of all as we experience God here. Like like Father talked about the prayers that He says in the altar um, it, before celebrating the the liturgy. It's like you're standing in the flame there. Like I I, I never go back into the altar without feeling. You know, little little bit nervous because, like, okay, you're going in the presence of God now. You're going in the presence of the Creator, the whole universe, and you're going to go serve Him now. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and, and there, there's a lot of awe that comes out in this in this in this prayer. Um, it's it's like the old the old uh, the old uh, priest that would serve the temple back in the Old Testament. Um, they only went into the holy holies once a year. And only what did they appear by themselves to do that? And there was even a long sash or ribbon that led outside. So if they died in there, they could pull them out. And and um, any anybody that, that goes back there to serve something and to say prayers this bold, mm -hmm. it, it this this is not messing around. Mm -hmm. there, there's there's a certain awe to this. I think our culture doesn't know what to do with veils and boundaries and limits. And we take, I mean, I go back to how I was kind of talking about because uh, we're used to 2,000 years of Christianity where we're able, because we can with boldness say our Father, because we're used to Christian revelation and believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the access that we have, there can be a kind of like taking it for granted, taking it for granted and mm -hmm. playing it down and simplifying, making it very streamlined. Streamlined and uh, what's the word? Informal, mm -hmm. and there is orthodoxy says it's formality and it's informal. Mm -hmm. There is a formality of public worship. There's order. I mean, Paul talks about this. There's supposed to be order in, in worship, right? It's not chaos, but that doesn't mean that the heart is absent. Because I think a lot of so as Americans, we kind of think if it's formal, therefore there's no feeling involved. Uh, but we all know that, like, if you want to have a birthday, you're going to have a birthday party, right? Like, you need form. <laughs> if you if you want to have a nice dinner, what do you do? You have to cook a nice dinner, and you put a nice bread, and you have your fine china. We know this, but then we come to God, and we kind of want like immediate access, and like He's just my butt, like Buddy Christ. You guys remember that? You know, like. This is not that He's shop, not. We have access right to Him. We. We have a deep relationship with him, but we need, just like in a marriage or a friendship, like there is a formality. Like, and there's also at the same time access and intimacy, but you need both in order for it to be, to really give it the attention and love that is actually due to who God is. 
just like our spouse or our friend, etc. So uh, I'm going to hit a little bit more of this uh, to finish out. I knew this was going to happen. Uh, so we'll continue. If you want me to keep what you, uh, for next week so that unless you want to take it home, I can just keep it and then we'll, we can hit it on next week. Next week we were going to be talking about uh, doctrine and scripture from the, the next volume, volume one. Uh, that is about icons, hymnody as theology. And actually, I'll have the introduction to the lives of the saints by St. Justin Popovich. That was basically the condensed form that Father uh, Deacon gave as a sermon. I have the PDF of it that I want to hand out for you to be able to read as kind of an introduction to reading the lives of the saints and warming up to that idea. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll finish out and then we'll talk about icons, hymnody, etc. as theology. I have a question about the yeah. lives of the saints. When they say study the lives of the saints, I went online and there's like volumes of lives of the mm -hmm. saints. Is that what y'all are referring to? Or are you referring to the thing on the OCA.org site? That has so the OCA.org is a way to freely access the lives of the saints without having to buy the, the $300, so $400 set. Those are just excerpts. From so there's different lives of the saints. And what I mean by different lives of the saints is there's different manuscript traditions. There's different mm -hmm. recensions of things. So... Uh, I believe it's Simona Pesher Monastery or Amelia uh, has a nice set that is beautifully bound, hardcover, uh, nice lives of the saints. But on the OCA website, for example, that the Greek will not have the life of Saint Tikhon in Moscow because he's a Russian saint. I think if it does, it's really Are they short. each about that long? Is it just like a short thing, or is it like the sermon, the homilies that go with it, or the? Is it, so how, in, how in does it go? the uh, the men. So in the Synoxarian, which is the lives of the saints, that is just lives of the saints. Okay. If you're talking about Menaean, that's the hymnody that is associated with the particular feast days of those saints. So we can talk about some of the specifics next week when we talk about lives of the saints. Where I just want to get the lives things. of the saints. The they're actually. I would. I would suggest just doing OCA.org right now. If you want to buy, I can give you uh, some suggestions. Mm -hmm. uh, one suggestion is the Prologue of Ochrid, which is shorter forms of lives of the saints kind of edited shorter and it has like a homily a little homily it'll have like points of contemplation uh, things to meditate upon God knows. Uh, that is a, that's a two volume set that's I think a hundred bucks but if you can get like the best in English that I know of is like um, the, the full set is like four hundred dollars and it's, Rostov, it's a, yeah, that's and it's a, not finished. That's the problem with Saint Dimitri yeah. Rostov on the Russian one. I like one I like the, the I like the prologue over it because it's a Saint uh, Nikolai Veromirovich or uh, it was like a 20th century saint, and, uh, and and just his life is is incredibly impressive. Just uh, imprisoned by the Nazis and yeah. all sorts of stuff. All right, so next week we will finish up uh, going through the liturgy, and then we'll start talking about. Uh, the so I, theology of icons. Uh, if you want to leave it here, that's great. Uh, and we'll talk about the lives of the saints generally. Okay? Alright. <coughs> Lord, now let's have a servant depart in peace according to thy word. From thine eyes and seen the salvation of thou prepared before the face of all people. A light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't know if it's in, I forget which stream of podcast, and if somebody's interested, I can, I had recorded a whole, like, series of classes just on the liturgy. I think it was like eight or nine classes just on the, the Divine Liturgy. If anyone's interested in listening to that, let me know and I can go find where it is. So...